Thank you so much. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 26. Father, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you for the truth of it. We thank you that it is inerrable, uh, inerrant. I'm not inerrant. It's it's inerrant, it's infallible, and it's it's all sufficient. There's nothing that we need for our lives in Christ that we are not told in your word. And there's no power that we need for life in Christ that doesn't come through your spirit. And we give you thanks for that. We come to this sober moment in the garden with Jesus to behold with wonder what he does for us. And so would you help us to understand and grasp what our Savior did for us on the cross. And we thank you for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I, th- I think the, the dominant issue that most Christians face most of the time is guilt for life. We know that Jesus died for us. We know that he bore the wrath of the Father. We know that he was raised. We know that we are saved by grace through faith. But we can't help but feel our guilt. We can't help but be aware of our failings. Um, when somebody first comes to Christ, I think especially when, when they're a teenager as I was, you feel the relief of forgiveness and you think, I'm just, I'm just now on the climb. I'm just heading up. But the longer you live and the more you realize that while your heart has been made new, your flesh is old, your flesh still sins, can come some, some pain and some suffering and some disillusionment with your own life. That's part of what we face. That's one of the reasons that I wanted part one of the readings this morning to be from Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah says there, as Adam read and, and blessed us, I just got to get my fingers working here, a crushed reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not extinguish. He's talking about the mercy of the Savior who comes to sinful people who are are guilty of sin, but suffering too because of their sins. And Jesus doesn't look at us in our suffering over our own sin and finish the job of destruction. The smoking flax he doesn't extinguish. The bruised reed he doesn't break. Instead, he brings life and healing. So we look at this moment this morning where Jesus prays in the garden. And we're going to see a couple of interesting things here. And I hope that you'll be as encouraged by this text as I am. Beginning at verse 36, then Jesus came with them to a, a place called Gethsemane and said to his, gar- to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. 
And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying so that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us go. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. The name Gethsemane comes from the Hebrew and Aramaic words for olive press. It was found on the, the Mount of Olives on the, either the, the western base of the Mount of Olives or somewhere on the western slope. We don't know where. There are four tourist traps today that are called Gethsemane. Um, we don't know where it was located. They didn't begin to even try to identify where the, the garden might have been until the 4th or 5th century. And by then, changes take place in agriculture. And we have to remember that there was at least one war where Jerusalem was surrounded. It's just not likely that those places remained untouched from the time of Christ until today. It doesn't matter, though. Uh, Gethsemane means olive press, Seems to be an area where olives were pressed, the oil extracted. John 18.1 says that it was a garden, means, meaning that not that it was a flower garden or someplace where you grow vegetables, but rather an, encla- an enclosed identified space. Luke 21 and John 18 say that Jesus and his disciples stayed there at night. They gathered there during the day. Uh, perhaps it might have even been his typical headquarters when he was in Jerusalem. So when Jesus leaves the upper room, we, we, we saw in the previous weeks, he celebrated Passover with them. Then he institutes the Lord's Supper with them. They leave, they head a quarter of a mile east of the city to the garden. He leaves the larger group of disciples to wait. And he takes Peter, James, and John. James and John were the sons of Zebedee. He takes them deeper into the trees, deeper into this place. In verse 37, he says, he began to be grieved and distressed. And then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved. These three words, when we put them together, we arrive at at a picture of Jesus that has not existed in the gospels to this point. We've never seen Jesus deeply grieved. We've never seen him grieved and distressed as he is here. This is unique. This is the first time. In fact, the the phrase deeply grieved, when he says to them, my soul is deeply grieved, has the sense of being surrounded by grief, surrounded by sorrow on every side. Everywhere he looks, there is grief and sorrow. It carries the idea of unhappiness, of mental and emotional agony, of anxiety, even of despondency and hopelessness. And we need to remember 
that Jesus was then and remains today one person with two natures. On the one hand, he is God in human flesh. He is Yahweh in human flesh. Yahweh is pure spirit. He has no soul. But the man Christ Jesus was completely human, fully human. He had a mind and he had a soul. So when he says, my soul is deeply distressed, my soul is deeply grieved, he's speaking of his human nature, experiencing that. As a man, he is suffering because as God, he knows exactly what's going to happen. We have the blessing of, of not knowing even when there's, there's a sound prediction of something that's going to happen to us in a, in a certain period of time. We have no idea what that actually means. We simply have to take it as it comes. But Jesus, as God, knew that he would be arrested, betrayed, and then arrested rejected, insulted, mocked, physically assaulted, beaten, scourged, and then crucified. He knew that. And what's more, he knew that he would bear the righteous wrath of God upon his shoulders. The righteous wrath of God against those for whom he was dying. Hebrews chapter 7 says that Jesus was pure and innocent and undefiled, but God the Father was going to treat him on the cross as though he were the only sinner on earth. God had patiently endured sinners and delayed judgment against his people, Romans 3.25 says, but the delay is over. For the sake of his justice, God's wrath is going to be poured out. For the sake of his loving kindness, his own son will bear it, rather than his people. Philippians 2.8 says that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And here we see that that wasn't theoretical. This wasn't a theoretical, hypothetical obedience. This truly is obedience to the point of death on a cross. Sinners sleep well at night because they don't know their sin. And they don't know the judgment of God. Jesus is becoming overwhelmed as we read. He's becoming overwhelmed with the full terror and agony that a sinner would have if they were conscious of their guilt and the wrath of God. That's what he's facing. That's why he is deeply distressed. He's brought Peter, James, and John with him to keep watch with him. They're not keeping watch for Judas, as we saw at the end of the passage. And by the way, we're not going to dive deeply into those last two verses this morning. They form a transition between his prayer and his arrest. So we'll focus a little bit more on them next week. They weren't to watch for Judas. We saw at the end of the passage, Jesus knew to the second when Judas would arrive and what direction he would come from. The Jews have a, a lunar month that begins with the full moon. This is happening on the 14th, which means there's no moon. They're there under the trees in the dark. And we can imagine toward the end of this time, Judas creeping along with the soldiers, sneaking through, trying to be quiet. We're going to take him by surprise so he can't escape. And as they come into the clearing, they see Jesus standing there looking, waiting so they're not on guard against Judas. They are there to keep watch so that they can bear witness to what happens to us. So that we know what Jesus accomplished in the garden. 
Jesus went a little bit beyond them. Verse 39, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. We need to talk about the cup. Even if all we had was the Gospel of Matthew, if that was the only scripture we had, we could get the idea of the metaphor, that the cup means whatever suffering is about to come. But Matthew isn't just using, and Jesus wasn't just using cup in some kind of random way. He's referring to Old Testament scriptures. For instance, Psalm 78 verse 8 says, A cup is in the hand of Yahweh, and the wine foams. It is full of his mixture, and he pours from this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. In that day, wine wasn't filtered. Today, if you buy a bottle of wine, it's beautiful, it's clear, it's filtered. They didn't filter wine. They didn't have that technology. So when you poured wine out, there was sediment in it. Like good coffee. Good coffee will have a little bit of stuff in the bottom. And what he's saying is, when when the wicked get this cup of judgment, they don't just take a couple of sips and put it down. They drain it so that it's virtually dry. There's no more wrath to go. Once the day of judgment happens and the wicked are condemned, there's no escaping. Isaiah 51.17 says about Israel, Awaken yourself, awaken yourself, arise, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of Yahweh the cup of his wrath. The chalice of, of reeling you have drained to the dregs. That's about the Jews. Jeremiah 25, 15 speaks about the Gentiles. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, says to me, take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. God's wrath coming upon Jew and Gentile alike. David prays an imprecatory prayer in Psalm 11. Imprecatory means it's a prayer for God to judge his enemies. And in verse 6, he prays this, May he rain snares upon the wicked. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. And then to continue in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, chapter 14, verses 9 and 10, another angel, a third angel, followed previous angels, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his rage, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. If you obtain grapes just off the, off the, the, the vine and you rent, give them a quick rinse with water and then you crush them and you place that in a container to ferment, it will ferment because of the naturally occurring yeast. And it'll reach, if I remember, an alcohol level of about 20% before the alcohol kills off the, the bacteria that causes the fermentation. They didn't drink it at full strength. Everybody drank wine at meals, but it was diluted down to 1% or 2%. And what he's saying is, the wrath of God is undiluted. There's no dilution. It comes in full strength. 
And so the cup that Jesus prays about is not just a taste of suffering. It's the fullness of God's wrath against those for whom he would die. He's, he's dying as a substitute for sinners, just as the Passover lamb died for the people of Israel in Egypt. When Jesus died, darkness fell upon the land, or rather when he was crucified, darkness fell upon the land for three hours, Matthew 27 says. And at the end of that three hours, Jesus finally cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what's happened during that three hours of time is that God, who cannot look upon sin, has placed all of our sins on his son and treated him like he treats us. And Jesus endured an eternity of suffering in three hours. He could do that because he is God and man. And it's at the end of that three hours that he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we don't know how God answered that prayer, but we do know that just shortly after Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, Father, Father, not my God, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The father had accepted Jesus' sacrifice. Having said this, he breathed his last. John says he yielded up his spirit. Jesus was not killed by crucifixion. He held on to his life until the sacrifice was sufficient and complete. He didn't die prematurely. In the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, which we're going to sing at the end of the service, we sing, How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away. That line is talking about Jesus on the cross, whose only help, whose only support is the Father, and now the Father has turned away. And we cannot begin to comprehend that except the hell that we can't experience or can't be aware of in this life. That's the cup. So let's think about Jesus' prayers in verses 39 and 42 and 44. In verse 39, Jesus went a little bit beyond Peter, James, and John, close enough that they can hear, 15 feet, 20 feet. He fell on his face and prayed. So we could stop right there. This is another first. We've never seen Jesus greatly distressed, and we've never seen Jesus on his face, ever. He frequently prays. John 11 has him praying out loud during the resurrection of Lazarus. And Jesus even says, uh, I, I ask this, and I ask this out loud, not for my sake, but so that those who are here can hear me pray. He had a deeply intimate, warm relationship with his father always, but now he is on his face, humble, and submitted, humble and submitted, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. He is not asking for the cup of God's wrath to be removed. If he were, he would say, father, I ask you to take this cup away. He asks, if it is possible, take this cup. And what he's doing is establishing that it's not possible. There is no other way to atone for sin than for him to drink the cup of the wrath of God, for him to suffer under the wrath of God. Yet not as I will, but as you will. I, I recently heard a, uh, 
a Muslim say in a debate, this is proof that Jesus didn't want to die and therefore sinned because it was the will of God. It doesn't say that at all. He's establishing here that this is a purely voluntary act. He's not being forced to die. There's some blasphemers in the world who say that substitutionary atonement, the idea that Jesus died in my place, is cosmic child abuse. The difference, of course, being a child who is abused has no choice in the matter, and Jesus is fully submitted to the Father, voluntarily. He, verse 42, he went away a second time and prayed, saying, my father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. So he comes at it from a different point of view. The first one says, if it is possible to achieve salvation through any other means, let this pass from me, but your will be done. Now he says, if it's not possible to save them unless I drink this cup, your will be done. He's establishing absolutely clearly that his death is necessary, that there's no other hope. There's nothing else that we can look to or count on. Verse 44 says he left them again. He went away and prayed a third time. (coughs) Excuse me. He went away and prayed a third time saying the same thing once more. So the essence of his prayers doesn't change. Is it possible to save my people without me dying? No, your will be done. Is it necessary for me to die to save my people? Yes, your will be done. It's clear that he wants Peter, James, and John to witness these prayers so that they would be able to bear witness to them. But it's also clear to them, do you see, that Jesus doesn't say, hey guys, let's pray and grab their hands. This is not a prayer circle. They're not there to join him in prayer. They're not there to agree with him in prayer. They're there to witness. Jesus falls on his face before the Father in humility and submission. He's never done that before. The devil wanted him to do that. In Matthew chapter 4, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to Jesus, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall not worship or you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus never bowed before human people, before human leaders. But he bows now before his father, humble and submissive. There's no other way to atone for the sins of God's people. God's wrath against them will not pass away unless Jesus drank it down to the dregs, down to the last drop. God's judgment is not going to be pacified. It's not going to be mollified. It's not going to be soothed. It's not going to be calmed down. It's time for it to be satisfied against his people. It's poured out in its entirety. Jesus drank that cup. And if I can say this, the cup was smashed and it will never be filled with wrath again. The wrath of God against his people was completely and fully satisfied. Not up to the point that they prayed, not up to the point that they believed and then any sins they commit after that are just their problem. 
When Jesus died, he died for every sin. Not past, present, and future, because when Jesus died, all our sins were future. He died for it all. Let's think about the disciples. He came to the disciples, verse 40, and he found them sleeping. This is after his first prayer. And he said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour. And I think Jesus wants them to think back a few verses. Verse 31 says, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I shall go ahead of you into Galilee. But Peter answered and said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. I think Peter's wagging his thumb. Even if these guys fall away at some point in the future, I will never fall away. Jesus says, oh, really? Truly, I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you at some point in the future, I will not deny you. Peter was making promises for his future self. He just didn't realize his future self was only a couple of hours away. I'll never deny you. I'll never fall away from you. Really? You can't stay awake for an hour. What makes you think that you, you, you'll never deny me? Peter's trying to impress Jesus, and he doesn't need to. He doesn't need to. He couldn't dominate his own fatigue and stay awake. I don't say that to criticize him. We would have had a hard time too. The day before was a long day. They had all the preparations for the Passover. They celebrated Passover and all the length of that, whatever that entailed. And then Jesus instituted the, the Lord's Supper. Then there's the, the teaching time of the sermon uh, of the, the, uh, the, the upper room discourse, which is John 13, 14, 15, and 16. So a couple of hours of teaching there. And then they get up and they, they make their way to the garden. And Jesus has now been praying for a while. It's well after midnight. There's no moon. It's under the trees. It's dark. It's very quiet. It's the middle of the night. They're, they're wrapped up in their cloaks and they just drift off to sleep. So let's not criticize Peter, but let's also recognize that our elaborate promises don't impress the Lord either. I'll never do that again. I promise. I've learned my lesson, Lord. No. That's, that's as, as Jesus said to them, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In, in verse 14, or 41, in other words, the spirit's writing checks that the flesh can't cash. So think about what he says. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. He doesn't mean pray, Lord, don't let me enter into temptation. He says keep praying so that you don't enter into whatever temptation is there. And keep watching. Keep watching. That means be alert. Stay awake. Be on guard. Have some situational awareness around you. 
when I took my concealed carry class, the instructor talked about the way he maintains situational awareness. He said whenever he leaves a building, he looks all around for a bright purple car. He almost never sees one, but he's looking for it. He's searching as he's looking out. And that does two things. First of all, it makes him aware of his environment. And second, anybody who happens to be observing him realizes he's paying attention. He's not a victim. Or you could do this. You could go on YouTube and pull up a lion hunting video. And you'll see that when that impala has its head up and it's looking around and its ears are flicking, the lions just stay where they are. And when the impala puts its head down to eat, the lion rushes in. This is the same term that Peter uses in 1 Peter 5, 8. Be alert. Be on guard. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion. Keep watch. As we bring this home to our lives today, I want to make a comment about the cup and then mainly focus on watching and praying. The cup that Jesus drank, if your faith is in him, the cup he drank had your name on it. He drank your cup. That was my cross he died on. That was my cup he drank. It's empty. It will never be refilled. I don't have biblical proof of this. And so perhaps it was just washed and put away, but I think it was smashed. Because it it will never be filled again. It no longer has a purpose. But when Jesus took my cup, he gave me a cup in return. And that's the cup of blessing. That's the cup he talked about back in in verse, uh, verse 27 and 28. When he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He takes the cup of God's wrath from us so that he can drink that. And he hands us the cup of his promise and the new covenant. It's the cup 1 Corinthians 10 calls the cup of blessing. It's the cup of Psalm 23, 5 that overflows with goodness, that overflows with the goodness of God. That cup, which was yours, was consumed by him. And the cup, which was his, is now yours to drink to the dregs, to drink to the full. Let's talk about watching and praying. Jesus commanded his disciples to watch and pray. In a sense, it was a unique command for that night for those men. But the New Testament commands us to keep watch, to keep alert, to be watchful. Colossians 4.2 says, devote yourselves to prayer. Being watchful in it, being watchful and praying are not the same thing, but they go together. 1 Thessalonians 5.6 says, So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be awake and sober. Concerning false teachers, Paul says in Acts chapter 20 uh, to the uh, elders of the Ephesians church, Be watchful, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. 
Paul knew the reality of false teachers coming up in the church from outside and springing, springing up from the midst of it, and so he simply never stopped warning them. That's not all he did. He's not saying that that's all he did. He's not saying that every sermon and every, every Sunday school lesson and every Bible study had to do with that, but he never stopped warning them there are lies out there and there are liars telling them. He was watchful. And as I said a moment or two ago, 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be of sober spirit, be watchful. Your enemy, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Keeping watch means being awake, staying alert, being ready, being on guard, being vigilant, having situational awareness. We're not to close our eyes to the world. We're to see it carefully and anticipate where an attack might come from. So Paul urges the Corinthians in chapter 16, verse 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, which is not like act like men and not women. It means act like men and not adult or not children. Act like adults, not children. Act like adults, be strong. In terms of readiness, we're to be ready for the attacks of the enemy. We're to be ready to serve. We're to be ready to give an answer for those who want to, want to know our hope. We're to be ready with the gospel, ready to confess our sins and repent, ready to forgive, ready for every good work, ready to suffer for the glory of God. And I'll just leave it to you to go through the epistles and see how many times we are urged in one way or another to be ready, to be prepared. None of this is done on our own ends. None of this is done for our own ends, rather. None of this is done in our own strength. Rather, we are to keep watch and pray so that we can live as the Lord Jesus did, with an attitude of humility and submission to the purposes of the Father and the will of the Father. Keeping watch is the work of a soldier. Praying is the work of a servant. Biblical prayer doesn't mean we go to God and say, hey, you, I need this. Go get it for me. Biblical prayer is coming to the Lord as a servant and saying, Lord, what's your will? And, and knowing, frankly, that the vast majority of the time, if he shows us his will, there's nothing we can do to bring it about. And so in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, when you pray, pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But he doesn't say, thy will be done by us on earth. You do your will on earth as you do your will in heaven. That's what we want. That's what we value. Prayer is how we orient ourselves Christward. It's how we align ourselves with the will of God. That's why we are to pray, if it be your will. Because as servants of God, we want whatever glorifies him and pleases him. And we would never want anything that doesn't glorify him or please him, even if it's the, the thing that we think would be best for us. So we're to be servant soldiers, right? Maintaining our alertness and situational awareness while also bowing our hearts and minds to the will of God. Father, we thank you for your love for us. 
We thank you so much for the cup that Jesus drank. That he bore your wrath and satisfied it perfectly. And we thank you, Lord, for the cup that he has given us. The cup of life, the cup of blessing. That cup of abundant goodness. Jesus drank of that cup his whole life. The cup of wrath that he consumed dying on the cross didn't belong to him. And up to that point and with his resurrection came the fullness of your pleasure, the fullness of your abundant life. And yet he suffered. He was hated by many, rejected by many, despised by many. And so, Lord, as you give us that cup of blessing, that cup of goodness, the cup of abundant life that overflows, Psalm 23 says, it doesn't mean a perfect life here on earth, but it does mean perfect life and abundant life. Would you help us to stay awake and to be alert, to accept from your hand your will, to, to be bowed before you, in humility and submission and to rejoice as we watch and as we pray. We thank you for all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.